0: Welcome back for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Mr. Jeff Bond. Jeff is an accomplished author, music critic, and album producer. He's written several books on sci-fi related topics, including The Music of Star Trek, The Art of Star Trek, The Kelvin Timeline, and his latest title, The World of Orville which was published in January of 2018. Mr. Bond is originally from Ohio and graduated from Bowling Green State University with a degree in creative writing, after which he pursued his career as a movie magazine reporter. Jeff's knowledge of film and TV music scores and their creators dates back to the 1990s when he served as a senior editor for Film Score Monthly. As a freelance writer, he's written several articles for The Hollywood Reporter, Geek Monthly, and Cinefantastique magazine. From 2003 to 2006, Jeff served as senior editor at CFQ, the latter-day revival of Cinefantastique. In addition, he's written hundreds of movie and television soundtrack liner note booklets as an editor for GNP Crescendo Records, Varice Saraband Records, and La La Land Records. Notably for us, Jeff, along with his colleague Neil Bulk, was album producer on the beautiful Lost in Space 50th Anniversary Soundtrack Collection released in 2015. If you're a Lost in Space fan, you really should consider getting this 12 CD collection as a companion to the Lost in Space Blu-ray set. But you better hurry, there were only 1,500 of these sets issued. I'm speaking with Jeff today about that soundtrack collection. And we'll also get a little deeper into the memorable music featured in the first season of Lost in Space. Mr. Jeff sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It's great to have you on our podcast about Irwin Allen's original Lost in Space. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, thanks for your time and thanks for the work you did as part of the team that produced that great uh, 50th anniversary Lost in Space soundtrack collection. I. Really love that, and I want to talk about that. But first, I wanted to ask you a a little background question. I know that you are a big Star Trek fan, and I am as well, but I was just curious, did you also grow up watching Lost in Space? And if so, can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, not to date myself too much, but I'm pretty sure... I saw at least a little bit of the original broadcasts of, of Lost in Space, and then it went right into reruns. Um, and I, I'm sure that uh, you know Lost in Space was more or less my kind of gateway drug in you know into Star Trek. Because uh, when I was a kid, I was watching Lost in Space, and I still watched it as as a teenager uh, and and still loved it for for what it was. But when I was a little kid, you know, I was I think, you know, I really saw Will Robinson as a peer
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, uh, you know, he was, uh, the the coolest you know thing any kid wanted to be I I remember uh, vividly and this is another thing that will date me is that uh, we had a local like it was a called a hobby store uh, but they had toys there and they had the uh, lost in space roto jet gun Ah. uh, which had this you know fantastic packaging this like color painting of you know Will Robinson firing this laser rifle and the giant cyclopses in the back ground and i we actually put that in layaway <laughs> that, that that was before you know uh, you just whipped out a credit card and i think you know i spent like six weeks like somehow getting, having my parents squirrel away money for that and then i i had it broken for a year and it within a year and you know found out later now it's worth like four thousand dollars yeah Uh, But yeah, that, you know, that was a very formative show for me. It was the first TV show to get me excited about science fiction and special effects and music because I I really paid attention to the music that was playing on that show. And then later on Star Trek and all sorts of other TV shows. So uh, Lost in Space was definitely, you know, ground zero for a lot of my interests that I still have now.
0: It's cool, and don't worry about uh, dating yourself. I think we're both of a similar background and, and age, and everything. And it's a familiar story uh, as I've started to reach out and connect with more Lost in Space fans. It, uh, everything you said, well, layaway—that's a word I hadn't heard for a long time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, when we're doing our review shows, we're constantly commenting on the fact that, boy, you know, these commercial breaks could be killer because you didn't have a pause button if you needed to go to the bathroom or something like that. You had to mm-hmm. hurry up and yep. make sure you got back before. Before you missed anything, you know, so such as it is. Let me, uh, let's talk about the soundtrack though, because it really is beautiful. I already owned that three volume CD, Lost in Space soundtrack that came out in the 90s, but this new collection just blows me away. And I only recently purchased it 12 discs. It's so beautifully packaged. I mean, I think the liner notes are worth their weight in gold. It really makes you appreciate how important the music for the show was. But tell me a little bit about your involvement with the production of this and what all that entailed for you and in general for the production of this.
1: Well, uh, I have been, you know, writing liner notes for different companies, all kind of very small record labels that almost all specialize in putting out old movie soundtrack music. Music and some some new releases, and I I think I got a producer credit on a couple of early ones. Like I was working for a magazine that had its own record label called Film Score Monthly, and they in- initially had a deal with 20th Century Fox, which is Lost in the Space's production. Studio and uh, I think I got a credit on Fantastic Voyage, which was one of my favorite movies, and 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 that w- this label was the first to put that soundtrack out. Uh, it had never been on record before, and I sat with the engineer. I I, I would not say I did a great deal of production work on it, uh, but I I sat and watched it being produced, and so the the guy who really got it going, the whole thing, uh, Lucas Kendall, I think, gave me an honorary. Produced her credit on that, and and on a couple of other albums that he knew, you know, I, I had a great emotional attachment to, and so was, you know, paid g- great attention to the process of them being made. Right. And uh, La La Land Records had done, you know, another one of my dream projects, which was all the music for the original Star Trek TV show, which is something, you know, wow. I talked about with Lucas for years. Lucas, you know, after running the film score monthly soundtrack label, came became more of a freelance producer and was good at kind of striking deals and and with all the major studios. So he's worked for a number of the other different labels. Uh, So La La Land put the Star Trek uh, set out. And that was another one that I got a producer credit on. I was, you know, very involved in that, but not as much as as with Lost in Space. Lost in Space, I think, was the first time I was actually doing the work that a, a record producer is supposed to be doing, which was Was actually picking the music and and sequencing it, how it was going to be presented and sequenced on the CD. And Neil S. Bulk were also worked on the Star Trek release and has worked on a lot of other record projects with me. He really is the detail person who makes sure that we pick the correct takes of music because they they you know for any individual piece of music recorded for a television show there might be two or three takes that were recorded and only one of one of them would be used so for you know any record release often there's you know three times as much actual recorded music to go through as, you know, we'll actually wind up on on the CD. Neil is fantastic at identifying and kind of cataloging and organizing all of that stuff. And in the case of Lost in Space, there were recorded episodes, you know, individual scores recorded for specific episodes. There was some library music recorded for the show that was designed to be used in episodes uh, as kind of additional. Music. And then Lost in Space also made use of tons and tons of music from the Fox library. And this was a common approach for Fox television at the time because they had recorded, you know, they're a major studio. They'd recorded countless hours of television or or of movie music for all kinds of different genres of music. Uh, This is kind of related to Erwin Allen himself because one of the keys to Allen's success was Uh, Not only that he was very familiar with uh, special effects because of the feature films that he had done Mm -hmm. and and how to execute them and how to execute a lot of things on a budget, but he also knew how to repurpose props and costumes, (laughs) uh, (laughs) footage and music from other movies and television shows. That's how he initially sold Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which was his first television show to Fox was by saying, look, we still have these submarine miniatures and control room sets that were incredibly expensive and they're still standing. Let's make a TV show and we can use all this stuff and, you know, we're going to save ourselves an incredible amount of money. Okay. You know, with Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea, he had also you know, he not only made a feature film which he could borrow f- footage from, but he made a movie of uh, The Lost World, which had a bunch of dinosaur footage that he could recycle into Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea. He of using that footage I think in almost all of his television shows he introduced some of that idea to Fox and by by the 1960s it was standard practice for Fox among their television shows to use previously recorded music from from their movies because they owned it and it didn't cost them anything so they would write specific music you know title music and uh, specific scores when the episodes were specialized enough and this gets Complicated because there, you know, some of this is related to the musicians' union rules nice. at the time that's established how much uh, you had to record a certain amount of music to uh, fulfill the agreement with the union. And it worked out to about 30% of the episodes of the television per season. Uh, and then the rest you could track, which means you could reuse the music you had recorded or you could use library music that you had recorded maybe at the beginning of the season or the middle of the season that were sort of more general pieces of music that you could uh, track into episodes or you could, in the case of Fox, you might track uh, music from the movies that they had done. And, and you know, when Lost in Space, the pilot was first made, that was all tracked mostly with music by Bernard Herrmann. Right. Because Herrmann had done a lot of science fiction and fantasy scores. It was a perfect sort of science fiction sound for the series, and uh, it was common for pilots to not have new music recorded for them because they were just to save costs. And then a lot of the cues that Herman wrote, at least a couple of specific ones, wound up being reused and heard in episodes of the TV show.
0: Right. So that's very interesting, and that's uh, very informative. So we basically got three, in the case of Lost in Space and other television shows, I guess, uh, following that, you've got three categories of music. And this is clear when you have the CD, you, you identify all this. You've got music specifically scored for an episode, and that would include, of course, for the series, the title music, as you mentioned. You've got library cues, which are also scored for the show, but they can be used in in various episodes for general purposes, sort of fill in music or themes of certain actions or whatever and then the third category is like you just mentioned with bernard herman you've got fox library music so there's library cues and then there's library music fox library music which is stuff that was done for other productions that that makes it clear talk a little bit about the organization then of the cd set because I, this has been very helpful to me as we're doing our review episodes it's basically sort of organized by the the episodes in the season and the episodes that those tracks were written for or whatever go go to that a little bit. Uh,
1: Well, we try to always present music chronologically, which is different uh, from the way a lot of soundtrack albums have been done over the years when they were... You know, soundtrack albums were originally... for they were a little bit more rare. You didn't have a soundtrack album for every movie. You they were sort of aimed at a more general audience. So the uh, often they were edited together, you know, to create like a more listenable album. So you might have things completely out of order. Um, you might have some music written and recorded specifically for an album so as we got into these smaller record labels where they're they're really speaking to an audience of nerds who just want to listen to uh, mo- movie scores and they want to have every note of the music possible right. and they want it they want it presented chronologically it presents a problem on <laughs> particularly on something like Lost in Space set because you have a certain amount of discs that we can do to keep it even remotely affordable both for the production costs of making it and for people to buy it right so we didn't want to go above 12 discs we determined that was the what we needed to get all the original scores you know, uh, presented. We, so we wanted to, at the very least, present all of the music written for original scores for for the episodes. And then we also wanted to get as much of the library music as possible. Now, in, in the case of Star Trek, when we did that, we were able to include absolutely everything recorded for the series. Hmm. Uh, and it's sort of the same case for Lost in Space, but w- what we were not able to do and couldn't even think about doing was include including all of the Fox movie music that was organized and, and marked for use in Lost in Space. Not all of it was used, but quite a lot of it was. Uh, sometimes it would just be for a second. They might just have wanted to have some kind of fanfare for a castle, and they might have taken that from some Fox uh, old swashbuckler or, or something. What we tried to do in that case was to grab the most familiar cues. So there's, A couple of Bernard Herrmann ones, the one we called Jetpack, which was the the music that you hear when uh, John Robinson's flying around in his rocket belt. used in the pilot episode tracked into the pilot episode is from a movie called Beneath the 12 Mile Wreath. And there's another piece of music called Quarrel, which is from a Western called Garden of Evil, but it's a very eerie, creepy, mysterious piece of music that they often would use when people were kind of talking to evil aliens on the show.
0: Oh, it is. Uh, It's very creepy. And and I didn't, uh, when I first listened to that piece of music, of course, I had no idea it was from a western there's a certain part of that with the, the strings that really gets the, uh, the spine tingling, the hair stands up on the back of your head, and I definitely recognized it from the series. so.
1: Yeah, that was used a number of times. And, and uh, you know, any time they showed the jetpack, you would hear this very distinctive music for that. Um, and, and then there are whole episodes. There's an episode that is uh, like a period episode where Will either imagines or go, goes back in time to Earth. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's... it's, it's to it's, Earth. Yeah, yeah it, it's not necessarily set in the past, but the, all the trappings of
0: the show, are like something, you know, out of the 1940s. That movie or that episode reminds me of It's a Wonderful Life, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's got that feel to yes. it
1: so they you know that's all tracked with music from uh, Miracle on 34th Street and a, a bunch of older Fox movies so the whole thing kind of comes off very much as a, like a period movie uh, so we we tried to include all of that and, and at the very end for the last disc uh, Kevin Burns who you've spoken to uh, and who we work with on the project really wanted to have a disc where we recreated you know all the tracking from the pilot episode and and that was a, a huge challenge. I was just reading on, uh, you know, an Amazon review of the set where somebody just was totally trashing what we did on that and saying, you know, all oh, these people obviously didn't even care about <laughs> about this. And I sat, I think, for three days. You know, another th- thing that's is kind of an amazing part of doing these sets is that we get all the paperwork. Well, that's
0: a, yeah. And describe uh, that.
1: the, I've got a, a chest with like three kind of wire ring binders, and they're each like two and a half or three inches thick of paperwork. There's a basically a piece of paper for every recorded cue, every piece of library music. It tells you whether it was, you know, re-recorded for the episode or whether we're just using the original recordings from the Fox movies. So we were able to, you know, kind of solve all kinds of mysteries because uh, when you watch the shows and you see a music credit at the end, that only is meaningful if it's an original score. And uh, and even on the original scores, there still might be a couple of minutes of, of tracking, because sometimes they would not like uh, one of the original cues that a composer wrote, and they'll decide to just use a piece of library music, or they might have just run out of time and decided not to record everything and know that they could fill it in with library music. So we had identifying paperwork for all of this, tons and tons of paperwork, but we had absolutely nothing except for one general sheet (laughs) with practically no information on it on the tracking that they did in No Place to Hide pilot. So I had to sit and identify every piece of music in that by ear and we got I think everything but two pieces there was one that happened just because I got on a the film score monthly message board and asked people to listen to part of I think of the Whirlpool sequence with the chariot there's all sorts of stuff in there from uh, mainly from The Enemy Below mm. but there's also a big piece of western music that Lionel Newman wrote for uh, some very very obscure Western, and then there is something else that basically no one was ever able to identify. I'm sure that someone out there knows and probably the person who wrote this amazon review knows <laughs> what it is
0: uh too but bad he uh, didn't let the, yeah, let the rest it, of the
1: world know right exactly I, uh, and we after we did it, i found one other there's a, a herman piece from uh some i like snows of kilimanjaro or something and i i was playing that album <laughs> like a month after we'd completed the set and i realized that this was one of the cues from That they'd used in the pilot. So, that that was what we kind of saved for last. So, in terms of how it's organized, we tried to have you be able to start from the beginning with the first scores from the first season, you know, in in order, if at all possible. And then at the end of those, you'll have some of the library material that was recorded or movie, you know, material that was used. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we tried to go through the 12 CDs so you could sort of get uh, an impression if you sat down for 15 hours or so and of uh, how the music evolved from the very first written episodes, you know, scores by John Williams to the, the final episodes, a lot of which were scored by Joseph Molendor. You know, one of the fascinating things about working on this project after having worked on the Star Trek set was seeing how many people from Star Trek also worked on Lost in Space in terms of composers because Alexander Courage wrote some scores. and Gerald Freed did some scores, I think, in the third season. And Fred Steiner did at least one full score. And what what I never knew was that he had written library cues for uh, Lost in Space before he started working on Star Trek. And Steiner was really pivotal, I think, in establishing the whole style of music for Star Trek. Because uh, even though Alexander Courage wrote the first two pilots and worked on some episodes in the first season, his style was not Not really quite aligned with the way most of the music for the series was written. It it fell to Fred Steiner to kind of invent, I think, a house style for a Star Trek. And what I did not know was that he had gotten some experience, you know, writing on a space TV series on Lost in Space. Only, I think, maybe one of the cues that he wrote for the first season of uh, Lost in Space was ever used he wrote some music for the robot that was kind of comical Mm -hmm. and and a little of that actually showed up in the second or third season he did a episode and i'm blanking on it but it's a about a bunch of space
0: cavemen space prime evils yeah
1: and he a little bit of his like comical music for the robot shows up in that. But I, I thought, you know, I'd completely forgotten that, that Steiner had worked on Lost
0: in Space. You mentioned that cue, the cue that I think you're talking about, that terror stinger that he wrote. That is, I mean, that shows up all through Lost in Space and it's yep. very iconic. it's <laughs> da 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 it's it's yeah. very effective and you know it's Lost in Space when you hear it, if you ever watched the show.
1: Yeah, I think w- the the interesting thing about Lost in Space is, you know, you had John Williams writing uh, the first handful of uh, original episode scores for it. And his music was tracked into so many episodes. He never worked on the show after, other than, you know, writing a new third se- season main title. He never worked on the show after those first few early episodes in the first season, but his music is heard throughout the show. And it really is the music that people remember from the show. But having said that, some of the most familiar themes from the show that I think people probably assume Williams wrote were actually not written by him. And that Fred Steiner cue is one of them. And that, f- that fits in ex- exactly with uh, kind of the style that Williams was writing in. And, uh, you know, Fred Steiner was a, a music Psychologist. He, he, Fred Steiner, also wrote kind of ghost wrote a lot of big cues for Star Trek, the motion picture, which was one of the most famous Jerry Goldsmith scores. And if you watch that movie, you would almost never guess that anyone besides Goldsmith had worked on that. But but uh, Steiner was very good at figuring out, you know, how to fit in with the style of, of another composer. And he had a very strong style himself. And and there's another composer named Herman Stein, who oh, scored yes. when giants uh, were in the earth, which is another one of the there's uh, four or five early episodes that all use the all the expensive action sequences and special effects from the original pilot giants uh, was one of them that score and the the score with the episode with hapgood the first like cowboy you know space cowboy episode
0: welcome stranger yeah
1: yeah, welcome stranger steiner stein worked on that Two and he is the one who really fleshed out the theme for Doctor Smith. And I, I suggested a, this cue called "Gourmet and G- Gold Brick," which is a very lengthy cue. But w- when people think of the Dr. Smith theme, I think that's what they think of. They think of this kind of mock classical, very kind of amusing.
0: Yes, it's uh, got a whimsical
1: feel about it. Right, you know. and that is based on, that that's, to me is another br- kind of brilliant job where S- Stein used the kernel of this really agitated motif for Dr. Smith that sh- it was about Dr. Smith being this dangerous character which he is in the first few episodes of the show and they I think they used it when he's like sneaking on board the Jupiter 2 and give, like actually giving someone a judo chop or something. And it's, it's this kind of shrieking piece of music, but it, if you listen to the actual notes, they're the beginning of that That yeah. da 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 it, The first few notes of that are the that John Williams motif, but Stein stretched it out into this whole, like, very elaborate, like, whimsical melody, and that's the music that people associate with Dr. Smith. And Stein also wrote this kind of family theme, as or people think of it like as the Will Robinson theme. That's this very, sentimental theme Uh, like for kind of woodwinds that you would always hear especially in the early episodes when you know john robinson's having a heart-to-heart talk with with will and Beautiful melody, and again, I th- I think that uh, people just assume, oh, John Williams wrote everything for Lost in Space, but
0: it was done by uh, a different composer. You've mentioned two of my favorite tracks from the first season: that gourmet gold brick track and, the, and that Robinson family theme. I can, I guess, I'm too sentimental, but I can almost get <laughs> get misty eyed listening to it. the way it's written. It's got the strings, you know, that are very hard. You know, it's like. Uh, yep heart-wrenching music. It's very evocative. And talking about that Gourmet and Goldbrick track too, it's funny because it really shows you how the music accompanied the, you know, the change in Dr. Smith's character. As you mentioned before, when we first see him in those first few episodes, he's presented as, as really a very, very dangerous villain. And by this episode, you know, he's sort of transitioning to more of this foppish, you know, Kind of yeah. flawed antagonist for the Robinsons, and that music just it sells it so much. And uh,
1: yeah, that that whole sequence, that Goldbrick sequence, is is a basically a long sequence showing Doctor Smith weaseling his way out of <laughs> a bunch of chores. And it's the it really between what's going on in the scene and the music, it, it that is the transitional uh, sequence for the character. It's him actually transitioning from a, a real villain into a comic villain, and Stein got that perfectly, that cue was one of the, to me, almost the piece of music that justified the whole release of that set, because no one could find that. The whole score for when there were giants in the Earth, there had been I think one or two little brief cues had been released I think on the third CD of, of music from Lost in Space that La La Land had put out but no one could find the score and it's a partial score that was I think there was maybe 10 minutes of music something like that written for the episode and then the rest of that episode was tracked with other music and for whatever reason no one could find it We we had all of the materials from Fox and all the recorded scores except for that one and Kevin Burns I think had some tapes of like stems which are the those are well, yeah, Let's sort of sp- this stems are hard to explain and I, I'm not even sure I fully understand them myself except that they're they're the kind of the final edited music that's dropped into the episode and it's it's designed to account for dialogue and sound effects so there will be drops uh in volume the the volume will raise and lower to account for where dialogue is going be present so it's not what you want to use for music listening experience and you it takes a lot of work to process that if you know kind of Fix the volume changes because what you know if you have something that's dialed down to a very low volume and then raise it up you start hearing all kinds of a hiss and mm. uh, background noise so a lot of work had to be done with that but sometimes uh, particularly on these like you know we call these releases archival a lot of the times because it's not an audiophile listening experience this is for people who they don't care. <laughs> necessarily how great the music sounds, but they just want to hear every note of the music. So, So sometimes you're forced to use, you know, materials that are not ideal, but this would, otherwise we would not have had that music on the album.
0: Tell me, you know, without going too far down into the weeds, what what is the material that you're working for? What are, what kinds of recordings are these? I mean, are these tape recordings? Have they been digitized? I mean, to give me uh, a they, kind of the uh, gambit of what we're dealing with.
1: Yeah, for the most part, like uh, from the, the uh, music from this show, uh, this period in television, every, almost everything was recorded in mono. Then they're they're stored. Uh, a lot of times, they you know have been transferred to uh, digital audio tape. Um, so that's the digital form that they might be in, or they might just be transferred now into just, you know, digital files, not MPEGs, but whatever. Wave lo- files or something. Yeah, like yeah, the, whatever lossless digital music files you're going to use. So that that's a big part of the cost. And I'm not sure if it works this way now, but you know, when we were originally doing record de- deals uh, with FilmScore Monthly, the way we approached the studios was that we would pay the cost of you know transferring and basically restoring the music uh, and then give that material back to the studios. So we could release the album, but the studios would then have the best possible music elements in digital form. So if they wanted to use them for DVD or Blu-ray releases, uh, or other uh, uses for the studio. Sometimes this music would be used uh, in documentaries. So they would have that. So we we would try to argue that we're actually helping the studios preserve the legacy of their music. So in the case
0: of, of Lost in Space, 20th Century Fox actually still owns and physically possesses these recordings yes, is that correct?
1: Yes, absolutely the uh, the studio always owns the music and and this is something maybe people don't understand in terms of like being a movie or television composer you might have written and recorded all that music but with, in, with some rare exceptions I think like uh, Dominic Frontier who did music to the outer limits like owned his music and his recordings but very few composers even the biggest name composers really are still doing work for hire, so the rights to that music are all owned by the studios. They control it and, you know, we deal directly with the studios in order to get that music. The record companies then have like a a certain window where they're allowed to sell a a certain number of albums over a certain period and eventually, you know, their license to sell the music will expire. But it's it's fairly lengthy and, uh, you know, as long as, as these things are stay in print and, and people are buying them,
0: they remain available. It's brilliant the way this thing is organized, like you were talking about. And that's it's fascinating to see and hear how, you know, where you find the music and what a, it's, it takes a little bit of detective work in the case of like, as you mentioned, for the unaired pilot, because there was less documentation. Although I, I did appreciate the fact that you included that track with Bill Mooney performing Green Sleeves because that's, <laughs> that's a yeah, nice that- thing to have.
1: That was on the, uh, I think, the original GNP Crescendo. Uh, they put out the, this Irwin Allen box set around the time that Kevin Burns did his uh, Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen. Documentary. So that was on that set. It might have even been on the uh, first La La Land: Lost in Space set that had the fourth John Williams score. I don't know why I'm blanking on it because it's my favorite one. Uh, it's on my friend, Mr. Nobody. Uh, that was the first release of that. It, uh, the Green Sleeves is another favorite of Kevin Burns, and you know he he was adamant that we in- include that, and I, not that I didn't want to, but he really gets the credit for
0: insisting that that went on the album that's cool i hope you're enjoying this great interview with lost in space music expert jeff bond as much as i am jeff's not just an authority on the subject of film and tv music he's also a sci-fi fan and that really comes out when you hear him speak about the music of lost in space He's got more to share about the 50th Anniversary Lost in Space soundtrack collection, so sit tight for part two of our interview with Jeff Bond. Before we talk about the, since we're going to talk about the music, I was wondering if you could share with us what the process that was used during this era for actually composing and recording music for television series was like. I mean, my understanding is these composers were under a tremendous time crunch.
1: Yeah. And not only that, but they were, you know, these guys would be working on multiple TV shows per week. Um, they, they might take a couple of weeks to do a score but I think while they were doing that they were you know working on like two or three other scores I don't know if that would apply to John Williams it's uh, John Williams is a really interesting case in that although his movie career when he was doing lost in space and this is a, a facet of the 1960s as a period in television uh, one of the amazing things about it was that you had major film companies Composers like Franz Waxman and Bernard Herrmann, uh, Hugo Friedhofer, all these guys were also doing television. And, and many, many of them were under contract to the studios, under contract to, to 20th Century Fox. But th- there was an incredible range of talent because you had these young guys who were going to become superstars like Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams and Lalo Schifrin, who were doing, you know, some of their earliest work in television. And and then you had these grand masters like Bernard Herrmann, you know, who, who were hanging out with these guys at the same time. And they were all kind of learning from each other. So it's a really remarkable
2: mm.
1: period in history of, of film and television music. But uh, it's true. They would work under very short, you know, time constraints. They were limited in the amount of players that they could use. Normally, you would only use maybe at most 25 people, you wow. know, play, playing playing. An orchestra and these guys you know williams like a, full, a
0: full-size orchestra has like 90 pieces yeah so.
1: it, it's a little bit this is another difference in the period a big orchestra in the 60s was maybe like 60 or 70 okay. people it's now it's like you've got to have over 100 people or you can't say you have a big or- orchestra but that you know the the style of orchestration was different. It's really Star Wars that kind of pushed us into the, you know, 190 to 100-piece 100 orchestra style, and that that that's kind of gone forward from there. It's never really changed since then. But, pr- you know, prior to that, the style of music was not a giant, lush, you know, uh, Golden Age symphonic style. M- mu- movie music was more... Like influenced by jazz or, or avant-garde mm-hmm. music. So like a score like Planet of the Apes, I think he might have had like 50 players on that. Okay. And it's it's a completely different sound. But, you know, Williams and and I, I would say Fred Steiner was also great at this. Um, they could take 25 people and make them sound like a symphonic ensemble
0: yeah because it's very rich those those pieces I mean I never would have guessed it was that few yeah
1: that... And, and part of it is recording techniques and and part of it is orchestration but you know Williams music was very complex he he was you know he was an arranger an orchestrator he he was a performer you know he had been a, like a jazz pianist uh, for a while in New York and he also worked playing yard
0: trained I believe right? yeah
1: he' he went to all sorts of you know he went to two music schools in los angeles and and also juilliard and he went back to hollywood after juilliard and was working you know not only doing orchestrations but also as a piano performer and he worked on movies like the apartment he worked he performed like piano solos on some early jerry goldsmith scores and so he was you know he had a huge breadth and depth of experience but what it's interesting because in the sixth his film experience was not that great. The types of films he was doing were like usually kind of small exploitation films, a lot of uh, juvenile delinquent movies. And then even after Lost in Space, for the back half of the 60s, the late 60s, he was doing almost nothing but comedies, Gidget movies and stuff. He did do some great dramatic work in television. And Lost in Space, I think, was really unique because of the kind of uh, palette that it gave him. Uh, in terms of doing like something with tremendous scope, you know, again, it goes back to Irwin Allen. The Lost in Space pilot was tremendously expensive It had all this location footage. And you know, they built this full-size chariot and took it out to the desert to film all these scenes of it running around. Then they did this in- incredible miniature work. It was all stuff that had really never been done on that level for television before, and it brought a very cinematic feeling to. Though, especially to those early episodes. So Williams was scoring what was basically like a cutting edge, you know, sprawling science fiction action movie, and he uh you know, there's very strong parallels between the music that he did for Lost in Space and a lot of what he did for Star Wars like, you know, more than a decade later. And even Williams has acknowledged this in at least one interview with um uh, John Burlingame that uh you you know, he th- thought Lost in Space was kind of a, a warm-up for, for Star Wars. And when when you listen to, like, the brass writing, the trumpet, like, the triplets, mm-hmm. the, the whole kind of wide-open brass writing that he did for the space scenes and action scenes on the show, you can hear all of that. And, you know, if you just listen to the... Scene of the Millennium Falcon escaping from Mos Eisley, and in Star Wars, the brass runs in that are are right out of Lost in Space, and a lot of that music is directly related to Lost in Space. So he was writing on a really sophisticated level, and Irwin Allen fixated on Williams right away. He knew that that Williams was doing stuff that was kind of above and beyond. What he had been getting before. On Voice of the Bottom of the Sea, Alan hired a guy named Paul Sawtell to write the theme for that, which is a fantastic piece of music and probably the best thing that Sawtell ever wrote. But Sawtell was really, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to call him a hack, but he was a, he he worked for years with a, another composer named Burt Schefter, and they were scoring just all kinds of low budget movies. And, mm. and they scored the Voice of the Bottom of the Sea movie and The Lost World and a lot of uh, Alan's early movies for Fox. So they, you know, they were good. They were very experienced and could do anything, but they didn't kind of wind up getting any kind of big name as as film composers. But, you know, Williams, once he did those first few episodes for Lost in Space, I think Alan knew that he wanted him to be the guy to establish the the style of music for any TV show that he did. So, you know, he hired Williams then to, to do Time Tunnel mm-hmm. and Land of the Giants. Although I think that Alan sometimes... Uh, particularly in case of Land of the Giants you know he started off with other people Joseph Molendor actually wrote a theme for Land of the Giants and he you know Alexander Courage wrote the original pilot score for the first Land of the Giants episode and that was thrown out and then Alan tracked Williams down and had him do that over for him Mm -hmm. so sometimes uh, you know I think Alan would think well I don't need to you know pay (laughs) the the money I'm going to have to pay for John Williams I can get somebody else but then the the person and wouldn't necessarily deliver. Yeah. And he and he knew that John Williams was going to deliver. And then, of course, he he hired Williams to do The Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno. And, you know, Williams, by 1970, he was starting to do more sophisticated dramas and movies that were much more respected, like The Reavers and Images and uh, Fiddler on the Roof. So he was getting starting to get a big career by the 70s. But, you know, Poseidon Adventure and the Towering Inferno were the Star Wars of of their day. And they were the biggest, they were the most successful movies, the biggest blockbusters ever released at the time that they came out. So th- that really put John Williams on a whole other level. You know, John Williams was going to do the swarm for Irwin Allen. And I think that yeah. <laughs> Williams, I think, had a, a kind of a nose for when he was going <laughs> to be less well-off Doing a project, and and uh, I think you know I think he sort of figured out that the swarm might not be the greatest thing, for the dude. So even though that was announced, you know, in the Hollywood Reporter that he was going to score it, he wound up not doing it. Uh, towering Inferno was the last time he really worked for erwin Allen.
0: So they're working under a time crunch. When they these composers were they composing, to actual footage or were they having to dream up riffs ahead of time? And then well, they sort of- they
1: they definitely would sit and do a spotting uh, session, which where they would sit with a music editor and basically make notes and and be able to watch the episode at least once. Um, And maybe... A couple of times. Mm -hmm. After that, I'm not sure that uh, they they definitely would record the music to picture. So you know, you would have a movie screen set up on the recording stage, and there's something called a click track that is like a synchronizing method where they actually have this like audible pulse that the composer can hear in his headphones, uh, and they can use that to uh, you know align where specific beats of music have to be. Mm -hmm. But as to whether they watch the episode again between the spotting session and the recording session, I am not clear on. I, I definitely had, you know... Gerald Fried tell me that he never saw the episode uh, after the original spotting session until he went on the recording stage, which is remarkable because the kind of music that these guys wrote was uh, particularly for television was very like specific and hitting things. You know, if somebody got punched, you would have a specific music you know <laughs> Do, yeah like so it wasn't just you know okay well let's set a tempo and just play through this scene you had tempo changes and complex rhythms very complex music it was much more notey, you know there were a lot more notes written uh, for music in this period than you would get now Mm. So it, it's, it was sophisticated, challenging music. It was hard to play. The, yeah, that's a a question I, I, because they were not going to give the, the the this was before video, and they were not going to hand the composer cans of film to take home. Right, right. Uh, and there was not time to make duplicates of of, of pieces of film. Yeah, it's very different. I I suspect that they they just took very detailed notes and that they were just so good at, you know, writing music that worked that uh, they could then get on the stage and they would probably have to make some minor changes. But it it pretty much was what it was by the time they they got there
0: on the stage to record it yeah well it's one thing to write a great title theme because you know you got 60 seconds to write a title score and it's about a you know a science fiction a space show or something like that but to write music that's supposed to accompany specific scene with moods and action and everything else and then doing it without you know having that finished product in front of you that shows you what a challenge that job is it's amazing yeah the I mean these
1: guys were uh, you know not only brilliant composers but they were brilliant dramatists and they They knew, you know, how music worked to uh, affect drama and action and mood. They knew exactly what to do. They knew exactly how to orchestrate
0: and create, you know, effects for for mood. Uh, They were the absolute best at what they did. Okay, let's get back to talking about John Williams or Johnny as he's uh, credited in the first season, that first original main title theme. And of course, as you mentioned, he writes another one for the third season. This main title is used for the first season and the second season. It's an interesting theme. I I like it, but it's obviously designed to go along with that, the animated opening titles with with the little squares or dots, you know, that sort of look like a computer screen or something like that. And then the other interesting thing you mentioned in the liner notes is there's a special instrument. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. Electrothermin? How do you say that?
1: Yeah, that's that's correct. And it, it's basically exactly what it sounds like. I mean, a theremin is something that is um, you actually wave your hands in, in thin air over these two different, like, a, a vertical and a horizontal antenna. Mm. And you're affecting, I think, like, kind of the magnetic field around that those generate. And that's how you create the tone. And uh, so if you, like, raise your arm, you know, the tone goes up. And then you can have, like, if... Vibrate your hand and create vibrato and stuff. Nice. It's very, very difficult to play. And the the electrotheremin, you know, I can't get into the details of it, exactly how it worked, but it, it basically, I think, was more like a keyboard. Uh, but you could set very specific parameters for it. Instead of waving your hands in thin air, and you're actually touching something, and so it was much more controllable. Uh, but it gave that sort of that that kind of eerie kind of whine, uh, similar to to a theremin. What I think is interesting about that cue is that it's got more of a comic aspect to it. And one of the big concerns for I learned this while researching, uh, you know. Erwin Allen and all the going through all of his materials for this book that I'll mention later. But one of the things I found out was how much CBS was concerned about the tone of Lost in Space because of the fact that they knew that the children were going to be watching the show. And because there were children as characters who were being put in danger every week, and you know, not only being put in danger, but but watching their parent be put in danger. And CBS became very, very concerned that this was much too scary and traumatic traumatizing children so i i feel like that title theme was part of a strategy to say you know from the outset hey this is fun this you know this is you
0: know yeah, it's, it's very bouncy it, and the that's Trump,
1: serious Trump... science fiction show even though you said you know you would think it would be easier to you know record a, a theme than score a whole episode that it's true to an extent because you're only talking about a minute of music versus maybe 20 minutes of music. But that theme to a television show, especially at this point to it had so much weight on its shoulders because it it literally had to be something Jerry Goldsmith used to always make some joke in, in his concerts about how the idea of a TV theme was that if somebody was like in the kitchen, getting, food out of the refrigerator, they'd hear this theme and immediately close the refrigerator and run (laughs) out to see their show. So you had to create this very dynamic, I mean, almost like feeling of that there was an emergency and you needed to get your butt into the seat to watch this show. Uh, And, you know, Williams and a lot of the other composers from that period were geniuses at that. So the Lost in Space first and second season theme, they're both kind of jaunty and and a little like kind of fun-loving, but he has those trumpets, those ba-da-ba-da-ba up that that's really a key element of all of his kind of urgent, scary emergency music in the episode scores. Mm. So he combines both the idea that, uh, hey, this is going to be a fun romp, but it's also going to be really exciting and, you know, scary things are going to happen. And that, you know, electrotheremin creates the idea that it's it's a futuristic and it's a science fiction show. Mm -hmm. To get all those elements expressed in a minute in a way that's exciting, you know, I think is a huge challenge. And and believe me, these guys would get ideas thrown out all the time mm. and there's a lot of rejected, you know, main title ideas. So if you didn't pull it off and you didn't get people excited, you know, just by the first few seconds of those main title themes, then you were fired.
0: Well, it's brilliant. It's it really is. He scored, I guess it was for the first few episodes of the first season. As you mentioned earlier, some of those themes or motifs that are present in some of those tracks stay with us for the rest of the series. One of the ones that I think you mentioned it before was from the Reluctant Stowaway called Smith's Entrance. And it has that, I guess you called it a three in the liner notes, the three-toned danger motif.
2: Yeah,
1: that's that. It, it, he often uses like uh, a kind of a mix of, of like bells and other instrument and woodwinds, usually. Woodwinds you hear a lot in these shows because you can combine them in uh, a lot of different ways to create uh, different f- feelings. But a lot of the time, that that da 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 thing that would introduce yeah. the episodes, and it immediately kind of established the idea that there was danger out there somewhere, mm. uh, that they were in this you know dangerous environment, and the bell you know use of the bells is brilliant because it's like you know who for, for whom the bell tolls it's it's <laughs> like the, just it's, it creates this very subtle feeling of doom. You know, he wrote these incredible action sequences for, for the show. There's a, you know, there's an asteroid storm. that mm-hmm. He creates this really brilliant, you know, piece of music for mostly for brass and, and woodwinds. And then there's a, this crash sequence where that there's a whole, you know, incredible buildup to them just kind of getting in their, you know, freezing Units to get ready to crash mm-hmm. this chant planet. And then the, again when the Jupiter 2s the famous footage of the Jupiter 2 flying down over these like rock formations again he uses like these huge bells along with brass to to create this incredibly shrill, you know doom-laden feeling of danger as the ship comes down and then you wind up hearing those action cues in countless other episodes that could be applied to anything and those uh, you know the recordings that you hear on the the set <laughs> actually the first set to release the original recorded music from those episodes. And the, the sound is not quite as great as it is on, uh, I think, the GNP release, because those cues on the GNP release were, they were library cues. They were re-recordings of those original jump oh. cues. And I, I think we had to go back to stems for a lot of the original recordings because that that's why they didn't exist. And, and this happens, this is another common thing and I'm not sure why for some reason the original performances of a lot of the scores get thrown out. This happened with The Twilight Zone two you know, years ago. Varese Saraband issued a bunch of the music from The Twilight Zone on LP and then you know later on CD and I, I believe all of it was library music because the original performances had all been lost.
0: Wow. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah, I I love that landing sequence. Another one that's quite memorable was from the called the earthquake from the hungry sea. And that also has a very recognizable action cue to it uh, that you hear over and over again.
1: Was the landing sequence and that earthquake cue were both used in like f- Countless fight scenes for you know Mm -hmm. rest of the show. You would always hear those, and that you know, particularly the earthquake cue is so complicated. It is. It just showed you what the sort of level of sophistication that Williams was at as a composer. That was you know movie music. I particularly I don't remember if I picked one of those the cues from uh, my friend Mr. Nobody, but the the, the diamonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a just a spellbinding piece of music, but that that whole. Score. I've listened to that score. I think more than anything from the series because it it completely works as a self-contained, you know, suite of music, and it it also just perfectly gets across the feeling. I think you got as a kid out of the Lost in Space was, which was the, the feeling of mystery and and kind of awe that you got, you know, as a kid watching the robot and all these the kind of clunky things that look really clunky now, but when you're a kid, your imagination really kind of fills in all the blanks. The music was really integral for that. The music uh, on all these shows had to do so much in terms of putting you into the setting and into the the environment and to make you believe in the props and the, the costumes and special effects so that's another reason why music back then was much notier it had it, it had much more complex texture uh, and structure to it because it had to create a whole world because the the special effects and the production values of the show were not always up to the scope uh, and it's not really through any fault of the people working on the show it's that they were so ambitious you know to right. to To set a whole show on another planet or in outer space and, you know, show spaceships flying around back then was, you know, it was it was impossible. And they had to just do something that was going to read and give an impression of the reality. But it's not going to, you know, when you look at every little detail, you can see that you know, these are props that were reused from other shows or things that you would seen before, or you know, w- wires holding up miniatures and, and stuff. The music kind of helps uh, blot all that out and makes you believe in what's happening.
0: Oh, yeah. If you were to try to, we just actually got through recording a, a review episode for that, my friend, Mr. Nobody, and it, it is a great episode, but the music, to me, was the highlight of it. I mean, I can, uh, I'm like you, I can just close my eyes and listen to it. That cue at the beginning of that Diamonds track That you were talking about. I don't know what instrument it is. It almost sounds like tiny little chimes or.
1: I think some of it's celeste, and some the harp is definitely used a lot in it. And you know the it's that fairy tale like. Yeah, know. episode ends with the, like creation of another galaxy, right. and 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 that you know that whole ending uh, I always compare with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know there was this incredible uh, you know modern symphonic score that Williams did for Steven Spielberg, and and it's the same kind of idea of of, of creating this you know incredible feeling of awe of like looking at this like you know outer space phenomenon and he managed to do that with you know 25 players or who knows if he even had that many? It's an incredible score. The only thing I would say about it, I rewatched that episode recently. I was actually going to show it to one of my kids, and then the one thing that just kills me about the that episode is that the the vocal actor that they chose to voice <laughs> was just so wrong, and 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 uh, he just sounds like kind of creepy and dumb.
0: Yeah,
1: and we, uh, we agree. <laughs> he's he's in a few of the uh, a few other episodes. And it kills me because they had uh, such incredible talent available. <laughs> you know, you had Ted Cassidy and Vic Perrin and all these amazing voice actors uh, at that period. Um, and of all the people to pick for this episode, because I, I think the rest of the episode, it's it's one of the best uh, that they did for sure. And it, it's, it's something that I think that really could play to a modern audience. But it, <laughs> you, you can't show it to a modern audience with that guy doing the voice, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Well, my co-host will be mad at me if I don't make mention of this. I'm not sure if it's the landing or it's one of the John Williams tracks that's shown in the early episodes and it's repeated. It has a certain motif in it that he swears sounds like pictures at an exhibition by Mazorsky. But I told him, I I said, that wouldn't be that surprising. would it? Composers do draw uh, inspiration from other classical or other works from time to time. (sighs) their similarities right i
1: oh yeah and i mean these guys were writing at uh you know a lot they were really writing at the height of their you know creativity i mean williams certainly was uh, hitting the beginning of, of of you know his greatest period for the over the next 20 years So that, you know, it was not like they were uninspired, but they were also under tremendous time constraints. And and also, you know, Williams uh, especially understood that you could use kind of approaches and concepts that that were familiar from from classical works. Mm -hmm. And and it doesn't mean that you were ripping them off, but you were using them as a jumping off point to create the feeling that they they did. I mean, he did that with, you know, Holst and. uh, uh, other composers, Stravinsky, other composers in, in Star Wars, but, you know, they're not necessarily ripoffs. They're just kind of, they're, I think you know permutations of, of ideas, right. and believe me, there are composers that would do wholesale lists. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> in fact, um, that one of the guys on Lost in Space was really infamous for this, and he wound up working for Alan for years, for you know, well into the uh, at least into the seventies. And and also when uh, sometimes when that happens, it's because of. The producer, or somebody specifically requests that they want to, you know, they want to hear something like that, or they will put it in a temporary track and get used to it. They, they didn't do that so much on t- on television because they didn't have time to make a, a temp track uh, back then. But the, their temp tracks would be when they would track, you know, an episode. They would just keep <laughs> keep the temp track in the episode for the, for episodes that were tracked. Wow.
0: Well, you've talked about Williams, we've talked about Bernard Herrmann with the Fox Library music and Fred Steiner, and we did talk about... But I want to go back to him just real briefly, because when I pulled up his credits list, it's amazing. And I didn't even realize some of my favorite horror or sci-fi movies that I liked from the 50s and so forth. He was actually maybe even uncredited composer for a lot of that stuff. Yeah,
1: he worked at Universal, was probably under contract there for a while. And, yeah, I think he was one of the people who worked with uh, Henry Mancini. Uh, You know, Henry Mancini was also doing a lot of uncredited work on on, uh, uh, Universal Science fiction movies back then and 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 Stein also worked for uh, I think Roger Corman he was a hard-working guy you know cranking out music he was he was very good at what he did he was and all yeah, these guys didn't get recognition I, another guy I want to mention uh, is uh, Randy Newman because we okay. found this uh this I was talking to Randy Newman I, and I, you know I R- write for The Hollywood Reporter and s- some other publications. And I've been very lucky to have talked to almost all the major you know, film composers who've been working at least up until uh, maybe like five years ago. I was talking to Randy Newman. This is at least 10 or 15 years ago somehow he may, because Randy Newman is part of the, you know, Newman family that includes uh, Alfred Newman, who, who wrote the 20th century Fox fanfare and, you know, was head of the music department at Fox for years. And Lionel ran the television music department at Fox. And then there's, you know, Thomas Newman and David Newman are, are also excellent composers. Uh, and Randy Newman, of course, is a, he's a film composer, but he's a, like really kind of more famous as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. But he he mentioned one time that he, I think he had written a cue for Lost in Space and just in passing, I forget what the context was. And I was immediately like, what? You, you Wait, you got to tell me, you know, all about this. So, you know, he was explaining that Lionel Newman was his uncle and he was basically just probably a teenager. And this is like probably just a few years before Randy wrote, like, uh, you know, Mama Told Me Not to Come and all all these famous uh, rock songs. Uh, But he, you know, was a serious composer. He did a a great uh, score in the early 70s for this movie called Cold Turkey uh, about this whole town that quits smoking cigarettes. It's a really funny movie. And he wrote this great kind of Aaron Copeland kind of score for it way before he wrote The Natural. I said, you know, I, you know, as God is my witness... Someday I will see that that gets on CD because I just thought it was amazing that this guy who's famous for so many other things had done like this monster cue for for Lost in Space. So that was another one of the I think that and the the gold brick cue were my two favorite things that went on the album it was such a, a shock to find out that that even existed and then to be able to find it it was the first thing when we got all the stuff from Fox you know I was just combing through all the library stuff to see if I could find that and we eventually found probably Neil Bolt was the guy who actually found it
0: you mentioning that and telling that story because it's interesting because I, I did listen to that track. It's called The Monster. Then I went back and looked at the liner notes because I said, I don't remember that in Lost in Space. I'm sure it was on the show. But I definitely, when I heard it, the first thing I thought of was Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And sure enough, it, yeah, says yeah. it was used there. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's definitely used. It's used in at least one uh Lost in Space episode, and again I can't tell you the name of the episode, but it's a real strange one where they it's late in the first season where they all sort of find this like underground civilization, uh, uh, and there's some point in that where they where they use that cue, but. I, <laughs> That It's weird because some of the library cues are like that. They would write one. There's some like that on Star Trek, too. There was one I remember hearing that was a, sort of a variation on this famous music that Fred Steiner had written for... Balance of Terror, but it's like this very complicated piece of action, and I was like, "I've ne- wait, I've never heard this, this is like brand new. This, you know, what is this?" Then you know, I wound up hearing it in used, and it's used in at least one little scene uh, on the show on Star Trek where there's like a fire going on. So you, there's a lot of sound effects, so you don't quite make it out in the in the background. But it was never one that was at the forefront, um, and I, I think that's the case with some of these uh, library cues. They might have just been used a little bit, so they don't get memorized. That's, you know, an important aspect to all of this music from the 60s because of the fact that they tracked these shows. You wind up memorizing... If, if you were watching these shows you know I think m- most of us grew up watching these shows in syndication so you'd watch them every day mm-hmm. and they would basically run for like a couple of months and then have to start all over again so you'd be seeing you know an episode five episodes a week and the same episode multiple times in a year and eventually you'd commit a lot of it to memory and you'd so you'd commit the music to memory and and uh, you know sometimes you'd hear the same piece of music two or three times in an episode. So you really got this stuff drummed into your head. And that's why I think this this is really the golden age of television music and that it never happened again, because by the time they got into the like 70s and and particularly into the 80s, the rules changed and you couldn't you had to provide original music for every episode. Okay, so that's cool. you don't hear those cues repeated over and over again. So they don't become iconic. And that, that's you know why I think so much of this television music is is iconic from that period.
0: Oh, it is. I mean, if you hear the Star Trek fight theme, <laughs> you know yeah. you know instantly what you're listening to. And I, I, that was burned into my head for as a kid. You know? yeah, yeah. Like a lot of that music was. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, gosh. We've talked and talked. We talked quite a while, and I really appreciate you being so generous, but I feel like we've just scratched the surface. And I sort of did that intentionally because I knew this was uh, too big for a, a normal show. So I hope maybe we can uh, convince you to come back in a, a little bit down the road and we could talk maybe more about season two or season three music, if you're willing to do that. We'd, we'd really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Because this has been fun for me. Before we go, though, I do want to uh, mention some things that you're involved with. I know that you've got a, a new book out recently called The... The world of Orville, and it looks great. It uh, it appears to be similar in concept to your book on the art of Star Trek. Do you want to mention anything about the? Yeah,
1: books? I've done a few books for uh, Titan Books uh, out of, in London, and they do a lot of great art books and kind of making up books. I, I did uh, co wrote a, a book with Joe Fordham called uh, Planet of the Apes, The Evolution of the Legend, which was not my idea for the title, but uh, it's uh, that was really fun, uh, and you know, I got to write all the stuff about the original Planet of the Apes movies, and Joe, he works for Cinefix, uh, wrote about the new Apes films, and I just finished a book on uh, Narcos, the Netflix show about oh. uh, Colombian drug lords. Um, that hasn't really been announced, but that hopefully will be out in the fall. And I've been working for about two and a half years on a big Irwin Allen book. Uh, Kevin Burns basically gave me access to all the kind of archives, this big storage rooms where every piece of paper that ever went through Irwin Allen's office is in a bunch of boxes. Wow! <laughs> and I spent six months going through that. And this book has, I think, about 1500 pieces of artwork, a, a lot of which has never been seen before and storyboards. And uh, there's some really, cool stuff from uh from Lost in Space that we found. So hope, uh, hopefully that's going to be announced soon. I'm having uh, one of our final meetings about it with uh, Kevin, I think, on Monday. You know, I'm a big fan of of this stuff, the Lost in Space uh, music set in this book. I've been very fortunate uh, to be able to work on projects like this that are really, you know, things that I would have wanted to have as a, as a kid sort of stuff. I, I always wanted all the music to Lost in Space and Star Trek. And I, you know, I feel like I'm incredibly lucky to have been involved in in any of those projects.
0: That's awesome. So we're we're actually recording this podcast in May of 2018. When can we expect this Irwin Allen book?
1: Well,
2: what do you think?
1: Expect is a strong word. I'm hoping it will
0: be out before the end of the year. Awesome. That would be a great Christmas present, wouldn't it? Yeah. So I also want to mention that you've got a podcast of your own, The Bond of Geekdom, which I've listened to and it's very good. But I wanted to ask you not only about the podcast, but I love your picture on the site there you're in (laughs) trek gear with the gourd behind yeah that's the story there
1: that's my facebook profile photo uh that i live actually not incredibly far from the vasquez rocks and i've gone out there uh, a bunch of times with my friends I, i mean another whole topic is that I got to be in a couple of uh, fan films that were shot in New York uh, where I got to play Dr. McCoy in Star Trek and and, oh, and cool. these am- am- amazing reproductions of the original series sets uh, which is not really related to the photo but I like Uh, I have a lot of fun with Star Trek and I'm, you know, Star Trek's kind of my first big love. Uh, So we, we went out to uh, Vasquez rocks one morning and uh, I just got a little 12 inch Gorn doll and put it on a rock behind me. And uh, my friend, uh, ben Small shot this photo of me and, it tur- you know, just the lighting of it and everything. It turned looks out- real. Yeah, it turned. Fan- and a lot of people don't realize that that's like a 12 inch figure no. in back back of me. I know a lot of people who are into like cosplay, which is, you know, dr- dressing up as your favorite TV and movie characters. I am not a cosplayer and um, I have a standing theory, which is that doesn't count as cosplay if it's funny. Um, so that's my, you know, I wanted to do something of, of show a kind of a clueless uh, red shirt on Star Trek, you know, who's not, who's trying to, like, figure out his next move, but doesn't realize that there's a Gorn right behind him. So the, I strongly recommend it. Anybody who likes, uh, I don't think they ever used it in Lost in Space, although they probably, I think it shows up in the time tunnel, but if you are out in Los Angeles, you have to go out to the Vasquez Rocks. They're kind of out a north of los angeles past santa clarita and it's this thing you've seen in a million tv commercials and and tv shows and movies and uh you got to go out there
0: that's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing all that with us. So where is there any place specifically you'd want to point our listeners to to keep up with what you're doing or? Uh,
1: I guess you can check out the podcast. Uh, th- those should be going up, I think, on uh, iTunes and YouTube. Uh, but PodSource uh, is the portal that they are generated out of. And then you can just look me up on Facebook. I, I tell people what I'm doing there every okay. day. Okay.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes and guys check that out and check out this uh, Lost in Space 50th anniversary CD collection. As I said, the, the booklet that comes with it For the liner notes, it's so wonderful, the pictures that are in here, and it's so beautifully put together, and it makes uh, listening to the music much more enjoyable to have all that. So I really appreciate all the work you've done. I'm very jealous of your access to all this stuff, but I'm looking forward to that book when it comes out. So Jeff Bond, thanks for being so generous with your time, very generous, and joining us on Alpha Control. We've really had a blast talking to you, and we'll, we'll look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks for having me. Well, that was a blast talking with Jeff Bond. And you can tell he's a real busy man. So let's keep our fingers crossed that he'll make time down the road to come back and talk more Lost in Space music. Check out his books and his new podcast, The Bond of Geekdom. In the meantime, we'll be back next week with another episode of Alpha Control where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original, Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.